grant about uh, anti-Semitism. This is thanks to Andrea Cattenin and thanks to uh, Intesa San Paolo that uh, financed, uh, that funded this uh, uh, PhD grant. Uh, is a topic on which we want to work more and more. Uh, is a topic that we need to understand throughout the history until present time. Because this is, a, this is very sad, but we, we have to understand that antisemitism is something that is inside our culture, is a big problem with which we as academics need to uh, work to avoid that antisemitism and every form of prejudice will spread in the society of today and the society of tomorrow. So that's why we start with, in this room, which is dedicated to uh, Ernesto Borelli, a man that was uh, a victim of a double prejudice uh, by uh, fascism and by the Catholic Church uh, because of his ideas. He was a professor. He did not sign the uh, uh, agreement of the professors of the Italian professor for fascism. Okay. Only a few professors did not sign the Duramento. Yeah, just a few professors did not sign. And what year? What year? 30s, 40s? 30s, 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 30s. And then he was, uh, um, he left, he, he was Cacciato, Alberto, expelled by the university, he was expelled by his role as professor, and he lost this. And we dedicated this new room to him, to his memory, to remember that something like that should not ever happen again. And it's something that uh, we as historians, we should remember always. So, uh, thanks to Charles for coming and uh, to, uh, to start this program. Uh, thanks to Andrea that has now the floor to introduce Charles. Uh, Just a few words because uh, I, I guess uh, the presentation of uh, Professor Sajer was quite very uh, exhausting. But uh, it is, uh, the focus and the core of that is, uh, is uh, to be very honored to have uh, in uh, our uh, university Charles Schesmoll uh, from Oxford in this period after his visit and, and lecture uh, period also in Israel but now in the alma mater and in the very, very important environment. So this is the, the core and anti-Semitism is the core of the two prejudices. And, and so the initiative of, uh, for Liliana uh, Segre is uh, maybe the event of, of this. Uh, that is uh, uh, thanks to uh, Sapienza, to Alessandro, to the rector, so to all uh, the, the mobilization against these uh, this prejudices. So I was, uh, uh, 
I was very, uh, I am very, very grateful. I was one scholar in the Summer Institute in Oxford about anti-Semitism and uh, taking back a lot of uh, uh, suggestions uh, and tools and methods about anti-Semitism. That was uh, uh, one among them. I want to mention only one. It was a, a very uh, a great uh, um, lecture of uh, David Patterson. Maybe we, we will have uh, will here uh, as a lecturer here. here. Yeah, so a few days and after that we can, we can uh, hear about that. So it was very interesting because uh, uh, here in, uh, in Rome, uh, giving uh, lessons and so on about ethnicity and uh, nationalism and what kind of genocide, show and so on. So we work on this like uh, in the laboratory, no? doing searching for uh, uh, key readings and uh, and you know, so the, the, the reason of uh, biological or religious uh, um, racism or uh, prejudices. But it was uh, Peterson was uh, uh, focusing on the metaphysical way of anti-Semitism. It was like a, a new, so it was a book and uh, so it is uh, always, so this kind of discussion is, uh, is not about uh, Jewish or Jewish questions, it's about us. So about mankind exactly. and the uh, relationships between, between people, uh, not religion as a, as, a, as a stuff, so secular or historical stuff, but uh, that is uh, what, what, which kind of uh, meaning is uh, solidarity between people or exclusivity or identity against someone. So that, is, that was uh, the, the, the big contribution to my background in that sense. Mm -hmm. I guess I, I share this suggestion with my colleagues and for that reason, uh, for uh, his history, maybe uh, the best way to, to listen to uh, uh, Charles, uh, Professor Small, is to listen to Professor Small also because of his background. It is very important uh, by family, by formation, by uh, education and experiences. So also through apartheid, against apartheid fight and so on. So I guess that will be a good contribution for all of us. So I give the floor to the, the speaker and... Uh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Alejandro, Andrea, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here and to be your colleagues and, uh, and we, uh, we met in Oxford and you contributed to the program, you made the program successful when you were both there and I think we were creating a network of scholars uh, in different ways to deal with these issues of professionalism. It's an honor to be here. I'm also honored Rami Aziz as your student, Thank you. also a student of David Patterson and a research scholar with us at ISGAP is here. He's an expert on the Muslim Brotherhood is doing incredible work. Thank you. And uh, brave work. Uh, because I think he's speaking out and writing and speaking and articulating about um, things that are not politically correct or so popular. And your work is really uh, very important. And I think I think we're at the cutting edge, actually, my humble opinion of um, people taking a stand, speaking out against things that we were silent about for too long. And I think there's a new wave of scholars and intellectuals who are brave enough to deal with it. So your work is really important. Thank you, Shabbat Robert Hassan, who's the director of ISGAP in, uh, in Italy, 
who's uh, been instrumental in bringing us to Rome and doing work here. He's here, and when you were doing the introduction, I'm reminded of, uh, of Robert's uh, family, who uh, was here in Rome during the Holocaust, and that these things uh, we think of as historical uh, events, tragic events, as the professor in this room took a stand against fascism, uh, these things are still very much alive in the lives of uh, survivors in the second generation and the third generation. It's very much part of the history in Robert's family's history and in their contribution to uh, Rome and to Italian society is immeasurable and it's uh, striking that uh, we're here in 2020 dealing again, um, again with anti-Semitism. And tragically, this is not a lecture in the history department or the history of anti-Semitism, but here we are trying to understand um, contemporary issues and contemporary challenges. So this is uh, it's important. So I'm, I'm really honored to be here in La Sapienza. Uh, this gap have a long relationship, and I hope it will continue to grow and we'll stand, to stand together to meet the intellectual and uh, academic and policy uh, challenges of our time, and they're really challenges. So I want to I start off with uh, a question. Most professors come here and we speak for 20, 30, 40 minutes, and we take a few questions and we go home. So I want to ask you, who, who are you? <laughs> If I may, your, your students, master students, PhD students, <laughs> mostly PhD, a couple of master, okay, and um, and your students of what? What do you study in your PhDs and masters? The theory, social theory of science. History of Europe. History of Europe. Particularly, my PhD thesis is focused on. Shanghai International Settlement. Shanghai uh, taking refugees? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, and also when I'm speaking, if I speak too quickly and my English is too uh, problematic, please stop me and ask me. I, I wish I could speak Italian, but unfortunately I can't. So anybody else, what else are you guys studying? I'm focusing on Polish issues, historical issues of the Solidarity Movement okay. and the spread of the circulation of the underground press, which was actually published uh, outside the quarantine iron, so outside Poland, so in particular in Italy and in France. Okay. During the Solidarity Movement? Exactly, from the 80 up to 89. I work on oral history, especially in Bosnia-Herzegovina, how Yugoslav identity and Bosnian genocide very remembered and are remembered by the people of Bosnia and Herzegovina and not different ethnic groups. Yes. You're from Bosnia? Half Bosnia. Half Bosnia. <laughs> I was there, I was there in 1991. Part of a group trying to create a, a cosmopolitan plan for the future of uh, Bosnia. I study, I study the impact of uh, Italian entrepreneurs in Eritrea during the fascist regime to the, the British military occupation of Eritrea. I'm studying the uh, um, peculiar moment of anti-intercultural uh, in 
Italian Antifascist, called the Man Manifesto of Interpreted Pene, in particular the work of Colonia, Eugenio Colonia, and Irbolo Albert Tishman, the theory of possibilism uh, applied uh, to the political movement. Anybody else? Sir. Sure. I studied the relations between Italian communism and the international trustees movement in the 30s. In the 1920s? In the 30s. In the 30s. As it relates to what? <coughs> As it connected to what? Are you looking at something specific or is? Yes, especially the role that uh, Alfonso Renetti was uh, one of the Italian communist leaders and also uh, one of the uh, Main, main uh, leaders of the international uh, secretariat of the Trotsky, of the international Trotsky movement, played in this event. My topic is 400 years ago, so it's not really related, but uh, yeah. It must be so. uh, Somehow, I'm sure. Everything is connecting each other, so maybe. Uh, my topic is Atenensis, Prefect Correspondence, and his political influence in the Hungarian Kingdom and Habsburg Monarchy and Italy, so it's kind of diplomacy and everything together. Yes, I'm 100% from Hungary. Not just from See, it is connected to the present, but we won't go over Yeah, I know, yeah. Okay, interesting. So it's an interesting group of engaged people. So I have a question for you. What what do you what do you think of the anti-Semitism? What is anti-Semitism in 2020 to you? Is it relevant? Is it serious? Is it a threat to the Jewish community? Is it a threat to society? Is it a, is it a group of uh, is it a political movement to defend Zionism, that Jews are complaining? What do you think of anti-Semitism? Like really, as we say, what, to you what does it mean? Is it anti-freedom of speech to confront this issue? What is it? I, I completed my master's degree at Central European University and currently it was expelled from Budapest. Well, from yeah. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I have a sort of current reflection of the answer to the argument. For Soros, Soros and the, image, the imagination of the Jew. Yeah, but it's interesting because we are too... Sorry, honey. But I, I was in the other part because after my home university was involved because the political uh, situation in Hungary, but it was not involved at all. So I have to defend my alma mater because lots of news in Europe and I heard German too that, oh, the Alta is such a place. And uh, it's not true. So we want, we want involved is kind of just, uh, you know, Alta is kind of recollected with other politicians. So it's a kind of misunderstanding of our situation at the time. Okay, so Michael Ignatio, who was the head of the university, is a colleague from Canada, a student of Isaiah Berlin and a graduate of Oxford, like I was, and he has a different opinion, but uh, maybe he has an agenda too. So the, the question of nationalism. So here's an interesting case. Some people argue that the nationalists in Hungary are anti-Semitic, and some are saying that this is just a misunderstanding of Orbán's government and the the, the challenge is confronting the challenges the uh, challenges threatening 
the independence and the uh, stability of farmer. Okay, so here's an so here's right potentially right wing populist anti-Semitism that's or something that's misunderstood. And maybe the communist Jews are kind of the capitalist Jews are playing a role in this misunderstanding, potentially. Undermining the nationalist aspirations of the Hungarian state and to protect it from foreigners, from migration, from refugees. So anti said that so that so in 2020 anti-Semitism is somehow in this story. Okay, anybody else? What does anti-Semitism mean to you? I think there are many different forms of anti-Semitism that you can find it in many different levels, for sure. And we are talking about anti-Semitism being a possible threat to something. Is it possible? It might be a threat to something you said before, a few minutes ago. And actually true and it depends also on the level. For instance, it can be a threat on stability in international relations, mm -hmm. for instance, as well as a physical threat for individuals uh -huh. in their home countries, which may be even perceived safe countries like France. We have relevant examples. Yeah. So how can anti-Semitism factor into international stability? Well, we know, for instance, uh, the Middle Eastern issues among, for instance, Israel and Iran nowadays, where there is a, actually a constant threat to peace based on the refusal to set a somehow Jewish-related country in the Middle East, as well as anywhere else, based on the wisdom to speech of some of the political leaders of that country, you it's not an issue of Israel itself sometimes, but it's something related, it's related to the Semitic or Jewish communities. Do people agree with this? Is that a problematic statement? Is it a good statement? Is he accurate? So, accepting the Zionists into this part of the Middle East is uh, something that needs to be done? Is it legitimate? It depends on your point of view, yes. So on, on your point of view, you're a group of PhD students, the cutting edge of uh, intellectual thought and you're studying, what do, you, what do you think? Is Zionism something that's legitimate and should be accepted by the Iranian revolutionary regime and other regimes in the region? Or is it a colonial nationalist experiment from Europe that has no place there? I don't think so, uh, I don't think so that it's just just about anti-Semitism religion or, or, or who is in this other side because the war always a business. So we have to think about the war is a business. So what who is behind? Who who is get some money, some power with some connection with somebody or, or illegal business, you know. So I don't think so it's kind of I think a war never 
really about religious, if I say so. So it's more like a business. So we have to see who gets some really good point of it. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? You think Israel is causing anti-Semitism? The presence of Israel in the region that's been rejected for 70 plus years? Is this causing problems? No, actually it just existed before. Exactly. The, the, the creation of the problem, the creation of a new state as Israel. Uh, in the history it was connected with other aspects. In these days I have difficulties in just thinking about anti-Semitism or something related to a specific policy of a state, especially in Europe. So the political connotation yeah. for me, in my opinion, it's it's not so evident in this days, of course, in Europe, especially from, from the European point of view. And what, what do you mean from the European point of view it's not? From the policy of the European states. So more specifically, <coughs> there's no there's no political anti-Semitism that were introduced by states in history and before the war and before even the creation of Israel, actually, or the Second World War and the First World War. There's no political anti-Semitism in Europe towards Israel, towards Zionism, or towards... The no, not in these days, I suppose. It is not so... Yeah, from the political and institutional point of view. So, okay. Anybody else? So, interesting. So, if the Iranian revolutionary regime... Islamic regime. It's uh, about Islamic revolution in 1979, you should to be clear. Okay. I stand corrected by the scholar in residence. Um, so, the, the Islamic... How uh, do you refer to Iran? It's not me, Zayf defines himself as Islamic Republican Islamic Revolution of Iran. So okay. based on the Islamic Revolution in 1979 by Khomeini. Okay. So not us. Okay. So the, uh, the revolutionary regime, Islamic revolutionary regime, um, call for the annihilation of Israel. They call for the annihilation of the Jewish people. They call for the annihilation of the Jewish people based on the incorporation of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Do you know what the protocols of the elders of Zion is? Yes, I assume. I, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who, does anybody else know what the protocols are? So the protocols of the elders of Zion. So I'm going to back up for a minute. So, and you know what? We, we're a small group, so if you want to. First of all, you don't understand my English if I speak too quickly, or you want to say something, please. So I just came back from Rwanda, and there was a commemoration, it was 75 years recently since the liberation of Auschwitz, and 25 years, 26 years actually, since the genocide in Rwanda. The genocide in Rwanda was hated and abetted by the French government and the Belgian government against the Tutsis. The French and Belgian government armed for years and trained for years Hutu militias and were preparing them to exterminate Tutsis for years. So I was there in Rwanda, standing with my brothers and sisters there to commemorate 
something which happened 26 years ago. And a group of uh, Jewish and Israeli intellectuals, scholars, professors, to commemorate the liberation of uh, Auschwitz here in, uh, in Europe. And uh, it was very powerful. And, you know, when I was growing up, survivors, and Robert will attest to this, survivors to me and to Robert were people who were older than us. And it's, you know, the mind plays interesting tricks on how we categorize and sort of put into boxes and store the information away from our consciousness, probably as a survival mechanism, ultimately. So for me, that generation was a million years away from my life, you know? And I won't go into the details. But to see survivors that were younger than me, and to see survivors who went through stories I don't even want to begin to get into, but I'll just say were horrific, un unimaginable, and they're younger than me, kind of blew my mind. It blows your mind. Because we categorize things to probably to protect our our sanity, to cope with our day-to-day -day life and history. Um, so I'll leave it there. But I think meeting young survivors really is unbelievable. So I just came from there uh, a week ago, and I went back to Israel over here, and um, I'm honored to be here. So I want to speak to you about contemporary anti-Semitism because we're living in a moment where our political leaders are engaging, even supporting, regimes and social movements which call for the annihilation of the Jewish people. And if that is not aiding and abetting anti-Semitism, I don't know what so, so to go back to the protocols of the elders of Zion, when Europe became emancipated and people were allowed to be citizens, when Jews were enfranchised to be citizens in Europe, as a reaction, anti-Semitism grew here. And the protocols of the elders of Zion is a forged document. It either, depending on where you understand it from, it either came from Russia or from France in the late 1800s. It circulated in Europe. It became very widespread and people read it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a lie about a meeting that was supposed to have taken place between Jews who were conspiring to take over the world, who were conspiring to control, to implement their control of the world. And this, ladies and gentlemen, began a form of anti-Semitism that culminated in the Holocaust, in the extermination of more than six million Jews here in this part of the world, not so long ago. And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion were the ideas and the words that justified separating the Jews from society. And as Elie Wiesel always taught, former Nobel Peace Prize winner, survivor of the Holocaust, 
He wrote an amazing book called Night. He wrote many amazing books, but if you don't know the work of Elie Wiesel, you could read Night in a few hours. It's a thin book, and it's very powerful, and I'm sure it's, it's available in Italian and many other languages. Please read it. And he always said that the Holocaust did not begin with the railroad tracks and the crematoriums. It began with words and ideas. And the words and ideas of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion justified universities in Europe voluntarily, voluntarily, the only institution in society to voluntarily give up its Jews were the universities. Not the army, not the military, not the unions, the intellectuals gave up the Jews voluntarily when the laws began to be passed. And this form of hatred justified the removal of Jews from society, from their jobs, from their homes, put them into ghettos in a violent manner, and from the ghettos to the final solution. And those words and ideas of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, as Rami will testify, or any scholar of looking at political Islam, not Islam as a religion, but political Israel, Islam. It's ideology. What? As ideology, not as a religion. We're talking about ideology. Looking at political Islam as a social movement, as a political a reactionary social movement, they took European anti-Semitism, which did not really exist in Europe, in the, sorry, the Middle East, and fused it with a very narrow definition of, of religion, of Islam. Mm -hmm. And they took the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it became a central component of the ideology of political Islam. From the Muslim Brotherhood, in the Sunni world, through Hamas, through Daesh, through ISIS, and even into the Shiite world. The Iranian revolutionary regime actually took Sunni intellectual ideas and brought it to the revolution in the Shiite world. And what they did, if you read the Hamas Covenant, or if you read, you know the works of Qutub and Al-Banaq, so these were the two founding intellectuals, the two more, most important intellectuals of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they take European genocidal anti-Semitism and fused it with Islam. So when you make a statement, I, I would say, when European countries, when European corporations, when European universities, are not only engaged with social movement that calls for the extermination of Jews, I would say it's anti-Semitism. I would say it's anti-Semitism. When the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, we just did a study, have been funding American universities to the tune of many billions of dollars, and universities take this funding and promote certain ideas in Islamic studies, in Middle Eastern studies, and contribute to the curriculum and the closing down of free speech at the best universities in the United States. The same is happening in Europe, by the way. So for two pieces of silver, we take the integrity of ideas, and they are impacted by people who call for the extermination of Jews, who actually argue that Jews come from apes and pigs. That a Jew, like myself, emulate, emanate, emanate, come out of the urine of donkeys. 
Yosef Kawadawi, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. Does anybody know the work of Yosef Kawadawi? Very important Islamic thinker, head of the Muslim Brotherhood, head of the Qatari Foundation. Started Islamic studies in Oxford University. And he argues that every true believer, every true believer is obligated to complete the work of Hitler. Every true believer is obligated to complete the work of Hitler. This is the man who started Islamic studies at none other than Oxford University. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a serious problem in our society. Serious. For decades, we have been engaging the Muslim Brotherhood and the Iranian Revolutionary Regime as they call for the destruction an objectification, a dehumanization of a group of people. And as Elie Wiesel said, anti-Semitism is sort of like an early warning system. Anti-Semitism is not a parochial problem, or an Israeli problem, or a Jewish problem. It's not a problem just for the Jews. Because while the anti-Semites will say, look at the Jew. They're not good in business. They lie. They cheat. They stick to themselves. You know, all the old stereotypes from Europe, the classical forms of anti-Semitism. When everybody looked at the Jew, Hitler was moving forward. The fascists were moving forward. But everybody was fixated on the Jew, and the Nazis moved forward. Today, it's the Zionists. It's the Israelis. It's Netanyahu and Sharon. It's the settlements. Look here. It's the apartheid system. It's the racist system. Look here, look. It's Netanyahu and the fascists. It's the Zionists. It's the occupation. It's the pinkwashers. But look what's happening over here, ladies and gentlemen. You have reactionary social movements in the Shiite world and the Sunni world that are committing genocide as we speak. As we speak in Syria and Iraq, there's a genocide for seven years. But look at the Zionists. Look at Netanyahu. How many people have been displaced in Syria since December? How many people? How many Syrians have been displaced since December in the last two months? How many? Does anybody have any idea? 700,000. 700,000. So, we focus, our focus as intellectuals becomes problematic. So, how long should I speak for? Another 20 minutes? Yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to kind of go into my lecture and then I'll open it to questions. So there's three forms, I would argue, of anti-Semitism, as the young gentleman said. There's different, the young scholars said, there's different forms of anti-Semitism. And I'm going to speak very briefly about three. There's the religious form of anti-Semitism, the racist form of anti-Semitism, and the contemporary dominant form of anti-Semitism, which I argue, you don't have to agree, is an attack on who Jews are as a people. So, I'm going to give you the history of anti-Semitism in about 120 
20 seconds, so for the historians here, please forgive me. When the dominant view of perceiving reality was through the lens of religion, and in particular Christianity in Europe, the Jew was the wrong religion. The Jew was unable to have redemption because they didn't accept the notion, the Christian notion of the Messiah. And if somebody, according to this vision or view of Christianity, didn't accept the Gospels and didn't accept the Christian notion of the Messiah, kind of a rabbi for Israel, and happens to be the notion of the Messiah, that the Jew would not be able to have redemption. He was blinded, or she was blinded by evil. Now, what makes this, of course, this is not tolerable, it's, not, it's very condescending, it doesn't recognize the other, etc., etc. But what makes it genocidal, anti-Semitism is, Robert Wistrich and other uh, scholars of anti-Semitism argue that anti-Semitism is inherently genocidal. So what makes anti-Semitism genocidal is that the Christians also taught if the stubborn Jew would only accept the Christian notion of Messiah, not only would they have the possibility of redemption, but the world would have redemption and that the Jew was hindering world redemption. So of course, there's this inherent movement to civilize the Jew, to change the Jew, to convert the Jew, to exile the Jew, to kill the Jew. And this went on for many generations, as we know, scholars of Christian relations with the Jew and Judaism. When the lens shifted from a dominant Christian, uh, Christian or religious point of view, and it became more uh, nationalist, racist, biologically determined, the Jew became a race that was polluting the purity of the white Aryan race. And theology, philosophy, science, eugenics, social sciences, humanities, the world view believe that somehow these socially, we now know it's socially constructed notions of identity, they were somehow intrinsic to our character. You couldn't convert from being white to being a, a Semite. And you can't become a Semite to become white or, or black or yellow, whatever the categories were. They were inherent to our biological being and nature. You can't convert from your race. So the Jew, which was poisoning the purity and polluting the purity of the white Aryan race, had to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with to save the world race. So unlike the time when Christianity was the dominant way of perceiving reality where the Jew could convert to save his life or her life, in the biologically determined nationalist racist forms of worldview, there's no possibility of conversion, so this culminates, this form of anti-Semitism to save the purity of the white Aryan race was extermination. This culminates in the Holocaust. Now, I would submit to you that these two types of anti-Semitism, the Christian form of anti-Semitism and the racist form of anti-Semitism, in liberal spaces at universities throughout the Western world, are not tolerated. I think if somebody would come up with a racist uh, argument against Jewish people or uh, old Christian religious forms against 
Jewish people, I think in most social circles, it's not acceptable. And the person espousing those views would pay a price. But today, the dominant form of anti-Semitism, I'd say, and a form of anti-Semitism which is not only tolerable, but encouraged, is the attack on who Jews are as a people. So, so the problem now becomes the delegitimization, the dehumanization, the double standards, as Natan Sharansky argued, against Zionism, against the entity of Israel, and the Jewish notion of Jewish peoplehood. So as Israel, the Zionist entity, becomes debased in liberal intellectual circles, in the best universities in the world, and in the media of record, the New York Times, Le Monde, The Guardian, I don't know what the media of record here is in Italy, but the best intellectual, progressive, liberal, media of record. The demonization of Israel is not only tolerable, it's encouraged. Criticize Israel, write against Israel, and there's rewards for you. So Israel is perceived in this sort of the BDS movement, the delegitimization movement, as racist, as apartheid. I understand you had apartheid events here in La Sapienza, which is now common at the best universities throughout the world that it's a racist colonial apartheid entity. If Israel is a racist apartheid colonial entity, then as liberal intellectuals, we would be politically and morally obligated to dismantle it. I was active in the anti-apartheid movement as a student and a scholar in South Africa. And I did so because I believed in social democracy and equality under the law. And I think everybody in this room, if you're conservative or liberal or socialist, if you're critical or positivist, whatever you are, I think I would be surprised if anybody in this room did not agree with the idea that every citizen should be equal under one legal system, regardless of our gender, our sexual orientation, our religion, our race, our political views, our economic class. We should all be equal under one system, one legal system, and that citizenship, robust citizenship, is very important to democracy. So as a young Canadian progressive, whenever I was, social democratic kid, and when I found out about apartheid South Africa, I became very involved and became an organizer of the African National Congress Solidarity Committee of the United Kingdom and Canada, and worked with the leadership of the ANC in the 1980s and 90s. And why would I, young Canadian Jewish kid from Montreal do this because I believe in social democracy, equality for all. These are very important notions. So for progressive liberal students in, the, in Western Europe, in Central Europe, in North America, to be engaged in the BDS movement, supporting a social movement that comes out of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, boycott. The boycott movement. The, the boycott movement against Israel. But is it possible to open a window? Yes. I think in 10 minutes we'll be following <laughs> sleep because we're <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
Bereich. So die Investoren, ist der Boycott der Investoren Movement, Close Israel and Apartheid Racist and it's been orchestrated and developed by the Muslim Brotherhood, by the Muslim Student Association, which comes out of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Students for Justice in Palestine. We just did a big report on the Students for Justice in Palestine and traced their ideological origins to the Muslim Student Association, which was, which was created by the Muslim Brotherhood at universities in the 1950s, and how they traced back their political ideology to the Egyptian Brotherhood. And they are forging strong coalitions and links between progressive young people on campus and intellectuals and, and to try to demonize Israel. Now, as Israel is being demonized, young students on campuses in Europe and North America who go to Jewish student organizations or pray on the Jewish holidays or Jewish communities here in Rome. You know how you find a synagogue in Europe these days? What's the best way? You just look for our military guards and chiefs. That's how you find synagogues. Where the machine guns are, you'll find the synagogue. So when young kids on campus go to Jewish organization or have the, 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 uh, the nerve, the audacity to support their connection to Israel, politically, culturally, historically, socially. They are perceived as a, a problematic member of the liberal postmodern space. Because if Israel is an is a, is a apartheid racist regime, and these kids on campus are going to a racist entity at the Jewish Student Association, or if members of the Jewish community go to synagogue on Shabbat, on, on Saturday, Friday night and Saturday on Jewish holidays, they're entering institutions that support the racist, fascist, apartheid entity in the Middle East. So there's this interesting, we call it the red-green alliance of political Islam, not Islam, but political Islam, and the sort of postmodern left. And I'll just read you something that I wrote very quickly. It's interesting, from the Frankfurt School. So does, do people know the work of Judith Butler, for example? Okay, so Judith Butler, amazing. Jewish, feminist, gay, intellectual. And she argues, in the spirit of Edward Said and Michel Foucault, that Hamas and Hezbollah should be perceived as part of the progressive global left. So if I would go to Gaza, I'd probably get one vote. If she would go to Gaza, she'd probably get four. But that's another story. So how is it possible that a progressive intellectual who is part of today's canon, right? So Foucault and Said critique the canon of Western philosophy. And there's also an interesting thing. Question binary notions of modern thought and modernity. Replace these binary truths of good and evil with relativist ideas of grayness, right? Of every narrative being as important as the next. Relativism, if you will. Now, how can progressive people be connected to regimes and social movements that calls for, forget Israel and the Jews, put that aside, subjugation of women, 
Women are not allowed to go into public spaces unaccompanied by a male member adult of their family. The killing of gay people. The second class or worse of religious minorities. The, the subjugation and the, and the opposition that moderate Muslims who don't agree with political Islam encounter. So how is it possible that progressive people in Western Europe and North America, intellectuals and students, are fighting and struggling to support such a reactionary, anti-democratic movement that calls for the obliteration of citizenship. How is that possible? And I'll explain. So Saeed and Foucault, for example, in the 1970s, spent time in France. So Yolo, Foucault, Saeed. So this is, they've replaced the Western canon with a critique of colonialism, with a critique of Western hegemony, and at some level, very important. I'm, you know, I was part of the anti-apartheid movement. Western colonialism, what happened in Rwanda, what the Belgians and the French did in Rwanda recently, what they did historically, catastrophic. So important to critique the excesses of Western power, colonialism, and racism. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to throw away enlightenment thought, to throw away notions of democracy, equality, justice, fraternity, I'm not so sure. So Foucault and Saeed spends time in Paris in the 1970s with the exiled leadership of the Iranian revolutionary regime. And they believe, that they write, that the Iranian revolution was going to be essentially the same for what Kant and the French Revolution was, uh, the French Revolution, the revolution was to enlightenment and, and egalité, liberté, fraternité in, in Europe. That the, the Islamic revolution of the Iranian regime was going to usher in something similar for the Muslim world and to the Arab world and sort of awaken it from the vulgarity, as uh, Foucault writes, of Western capitalism and materialism. So they sort of idealized this sort of, I would say, Orientalist, uh, Said and Foucault, notion of the Arab and of, of Islam. And to, to, if you think about it, as the Middle East changes, people like Rami are writing about a changing Sunni world, the Shiite world, Foucault and certainly Said never looks at the cleavages in these societies. They never talk about the anti-Semitism. They never speak about the rise of reactionary anti-Semitic social movements. It's all about sort of Western hegemony and to, to speak critically of those who were once colonized is sort of a cardinal sin. So when, as a progressive critical scholar educated in McGill and London and Oxford, when I started reading about the Muslim Brotherhood for the first time, is that other than Rami, has anybody studied the Muslim Brotherhood? One person. What do you study? Yeah. Oh, what, what aspect? Oh. All of it. Okay. She's working on anti-Semitism. Ah, nice. I know you are. Okay. Nice. So, if, so when you go to universities, and I, went, I had a very good education, and you speak to scholars, and you speak to students about the Muslim Brotherhood, some people vaguely hear about it, but we don't study it. We don't take it seriously. I, I did not. And I started studying about the Muslim Brotherhood when I was living in Israel as part of an Israeli-Palestinian uh, 
reconciliation group of scholars, and they met an amazing professor, very nice man, very cultured man, professor of philosophy. And every time we would meet, we would argue. And in those days, I used to like to argue more than I do now. I love to, you know, I used to have more uh, energy. And this professor was saying very strange things about Jews, about women, about Christians, about democracy, and we would argue. But he was a nice guy. He kept bringing me tea and nice food. And he was very hospitable and he was a very, he was a gentleman. But he had these ideas. And around the fourth time we met, I said, you know what, I don't want to argue with you. Give me some articles that influence you, that inspire you. And that's when he introduced me to the founding intellectuals of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I read everything I possibly could in English and in French. And it was shocking, because I was working on globalization and social and cultural theory and neoliberalism, looking at marginality and hybridity. And neoliberals want to weaken the state, to bring in free market economies, to expand economic development, and to bring, with economic development, more democracy. The Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, want to destroy the state. So here we have neoliberals wanting to weaken the state, and Islamists seeing the state as a vestige of imperialism and colonialism, working to destroy it. And I started reading this anti-Semitism, connected directly to the Nazis. I'm, I'm, now I'm speaking to you as a scholar. Rami will know, others will know, David Patterson will know, that the, the strong intellectual and political connection between the Muslim Brotherhood and Nazism, European fascist Nazism, is strong and direct. And I started reading this for the first time, even though I went to McGill and Oxford, I never heard of it. I did political science and social theory. So I started reading. And for me to start telling my progressive comrades, anti-apartheid movement comrades, and the progressive critical scholars and that we studied together, that you know, there's not going to be a peace agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians that the PLO is connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. And did you know that the Muslim Brotherhood are connected to the Nazis? And the PLO is connected to the Nazis? My friends, my comrades looked at me and they said, well, we didn't know you were that type of Jew. We didn't know that you were a Zionist. Right? So no matter, I have a good education, I'm a scholar, and I researched this as a scholar, not as a Jew, not as a Zionist, as a scholar. And I was quoting from the text to my friends, to my intellectual friends, some of the smartest, most accomplished scholars of my generation, leaders, I won't tell you their names, but the serious, smart, nice people, they couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that there was a connection between those who were once colonized to being Nazis. And for anybody to have the audacity to say, you know what, the Iranians and the Gazans, they deserve human rights, they deserve respect. They deserve to have self-determination. But they're under regimes that are horrible. So in this Edward Saidian, Michel Foucault, Judith Butler paradigm, you cannot criticize those who once colonized because you're a neo-imperialist. You're a fascist. You're a racist. So rational thought goes out the window. And here I wrote something that I find for me, interesting. Do you know the work of uh, uh, Forkheimer and um, Ardarno? No, I'm just going to read it. It's okay, sorry. 
So Horkheimer and Adorno, who started the Frankfurt School of Thought, who were Jews who ran to New York to survive as refugees. They helped establish the new school of social thought in New York City. And after the war, they went, to, they went as refugees in the 30s, in the mid-30s. And they were sort of Marxists, uh, Freudian Marxists, who were critiquing notions of anti-Semitism, of uh, totalitarianism in Europe. And um, they critiqued Western culture, and Ardono became best known, I guess, for his proclamation that there could be no poetry after Auschwitz, which basically meant that the Nazi death count in the center of Europe ended any pretense of Western refinement and culture. This was the nail in the coffin of Western society and Western culture, morally, politically. And the pursuit um, of enlightenment and rational universalism, in Ardorno's view, actually led to the Nazis. That this was another, as, as uh, Elias, Norbert Elias wrote in the civilizing process, that enlightenment actually became another form of the civilizing process. And when you start to civilize people, in quotations, it leads or can lead to a genocide. And that the Nazis, um, that the, there was a blurring between civilization and barbarism, which led to the final solution. And after all, Nazis were trying to save Western civilization. Fascists were trying to save Western civilization from the poisonous Jew. Exterminating the Jew was something good. So enlightenment, according to the Ardorno and Horkheimer, actually contained the seeds of its own destruction, the eventual domination of the world through a reason that had rendered fully instrumental, became fully instrumental in the service of the state, and led to genocide. So according to Ardorno, the promises of enlightenment freedom led to fascism and ultimately to the death camps. A very seminal, important work. And yet, in a strange twist, the humanists, the postmodernists of the 1980s, I, uh, appropriated the Frankfurt School, this kind of anti-fascist view of totalitarianism and of the Holocaust. These are the first people that really wrote about the Holocaust, Jewish refugees, Marxists. And the Frankfurt School, their perception of understanding was basically co-opted. And in, in, a, in a strange way, took this philosophy and this view and turned it against the Jews. So starting in the 1970s, Michel Foucault, the most influential figure in the humanities over the past four decades, adopted the Frankfurt School for Social and Cultural History as a foundation of his writing. He wrote on love, sex, mental illness, and the prison system. And Foucault found all aspects, all aspects of Western life to be in the field of power. He looks at power. Within, he wrote this famous book, Discipline and Punishment. Sorry, discipline and punish, turning the prison into a metaphor for Western civilization and culture and domination. For Foucault and his followers, all social relations were governed by power. All reason is nothing but instrumental reasoning. Whatever is grabbed or taken, whatever is self-image. In fact, Foucault shows that ways in which the systematic institutionalization of injustices of Western civilization has been pursued in the name of enlightenment, 
Terry Eagleton, uh, I'll go on and on. The Marxist literary critic Said, still the guiding spirit of many American Middle East studies programs and social science and humanities programs, had a repackage, Michel Foucault, calling the Enlightenment the master sign of Orientalism and colonialism. And he wrote his famous book in uh, Orientalism, which critiques the canon of Western thought. Said linked Zionism for him as the colonialist, the colonialist project par excellence. This was the ultimate form of colonialism. So that the real aims of the purveyors of enlightenment are, are power and domination, the Jewish state becomes a symbol of the excesses of the West. So this, to me, is, uh, is very important. So Israel and the Jews actually become the, the symbol of, of Nazism, of fascism, of colonialism, and that it represents all that is wrong with Western civilization. So what starts with the Frankfurt School is a critique of enlightenment, of reason, and of fascism has now turned against Israel and the Jews. So, so this, at an, at an intellectual moment, I think is very important because, in a sense, this is a, a dominant way, or a, certainly a, an important way, that academia is portraying the Jew and Israel. So no longer the Christian forms of anti-Semitism, no longer the racial, biological, Aryan, Semitic forms of anti-Semitism, but Israel, as the colonial, racist, fascist, apartheid entity. Jewish students on campus aligned to this entity that needs to be dismantled. And this is where the anti-Semitism is. Now there's surveys done in, in American universities by Barry Cosman. Barry did a study on, on students at various universities in the United States. And he showed that women, female students, have witnessed or experienced a sexist act. About 22% of women have experienced this in a six-month period. African-American students, it's about the same. So 24% of African-American students at American universities have experienced or witnessed a racist act. Jewish students at American universities, not Europe where it's more difficult, but in the United States of America, 80%, 81%. American Jewish students have witnessed or experienced an anti-Semitic act on their campus. So, and it's not, you know, nobody's running after them with the New Testament saying convert and be saved. Nobody's running to kill them because they're not a pure Aryan. So they're running after them for different reasons. I'll just end uh, on, on one note, which I think connects into Alexandra's work a little bit. I think, in, in a way, we hope we're entering into a new moment where I think people in the Middle East are realizing after the catastrophe of wars and this ideology um, that has just wreaked havoc in the region um, and has been ignored by the politically correct Western intellectual that maybe the, 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 the organically, I hope, in the region, people are just saying that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Iranian Revolutionary Regime, that these ideas are just, it's just 
just, it's not good for anybody. And it needs to be checked. Despite the silence of the West, and probably in spite of their support of the West to these movements. And it's a whole other lecture, but there's been economic, geostrategic, political, intellectual support for these movements for decades. Um, one of the research projects we did, I mentioned, Follow the Money and the Funding, I presented in Washington in July. And at the Department of Education called a meeting, the head of the FBI, the head of Treasury, the State Department, the Attorney General, the Assistant Attorney General, and the, the head of education, and top civil servants came to hear us and a few other people present. And in our research, we found three and a half billion dollars from the Muslim Brotherhood going into 10 universities in the United States. That's a billion. And we're a small research team. So if we found three and a half billion dollars, it's just a fraction of what's happening. And just in November, they, they announced an investigation into foreign funding of American universities. Illegal, unreported foreign funding. There's legal ways to do it. Um, so this changes. I think ultimately, I'll stop, I'll stop on a positive note. And so I think there is a realization that this movement, the social movement that hijacked Islam, that took fascism, and was met with the silence in the West, and fused this together, who perceives the other as non-human, as descending from apes and pigs and urine, piss and slime. That Emmanuel Levinas, do you know the work of Emmanuel Levinas? So he, he does a lot of work on the philosophical construction of otherness, belonging, and our interrelations to the other. And he argues that when the other is dehumanized, there's nothing you can do. If there's a totalitarian movement that objectifies the other as non-human, there's no negotiation, there's, no, there's nothing that can be done. There's, no, no interview, there's nothing that can be done. You cannot negotiate with somebody who does not perceive you as fully human. It's impossible. And these social movements did not perceive many groups of people as completely human, fully human. And anti-Semitism begins with the Jews, but it doesn't end with the Jews. History shows once this form of hatred is unleashed, it knows no boundaries. The Nazis focused on the Jew, but 80, not only was more than 6 million Jews exterminated, 80 million Europeans were killed in the war, and this part of the world was devastated was destroyed. The Muslim Brotherhood and the Iranian Revolutionary Regime focuses on the Zionist entity, the Jew, backed up by postmodern Western thought. So we remain silent. And there's genocides taking place in many spaces. So Emmanuel Levinas will argue that, and it's profound to me and to many scholars, he says that basically when you see your face in the face of the other, when you see your face in the face of the other, this is the moment, the instant you become human. So you need the other to be human. So if I'm a racist, I hate, let's say I hate Africans, I've eliminated one billion possibilities for me to be human. If I don't like Italians, I've I, I won't have many possibilities to be human in this classroom because I've objectified you. 
I need you to be human. I need you to be ethical. So this sense of humility, which comes out of Jewish ethics, of Jewish thought. Levinus survived the Holocaust in France. His entire family was liquidated, murdered by the Nazis in Lithuania. He survived because he was doing his PhD in France. And he brought Jewish ethics to the university. So he's not just like a Jewish scholar. I'm a Jewish scholar working on anti-Semitism. He was a Jewish scholar working on Jewish thought. He brought Jewish thought to the academy, to the university, for the first time. And I think his contribution to ethics is very important. And I think this notion of humility, that we're all created from the same source. We're all created by in the image of God, something higher. If you don't believe in God, something higher. And there's no, once we start having hurdles, once there's a criteria of who is created in the image of God and who is not created in the image of God, we learn that this is the beginning of chaos. This is the beginning of destruction. When we learn that you have to do something to be created in the image of God, whatever that is, a prayer, a ceremony, a belief, problematic. We're all created in the image of God. To be human, we need the other. To be human, we become wise. We, we, we receive the truths of each and every individual person has within them, we can receive them. And I think that this notion of humility that guides the ethics to the other, that we need the other for ourselves, is very profound. And it's not, I'll just end with this, it's not a tolerance. You know, this room is hot and stuffy and I'm jet lagged and I'm tired. I want to speak with you, so I'm tolerating the, the space. I'm tolerating. Right? Humility is that I need the other to be human. I need the other to exist. It's different. Tolerance can be very kind of condescending. So humility is very important. And yeah, I'll just I'll end on a positive note. But these so I'll just say that these are very serious issues. Anti-Semitism is an early warning system for society. And the extreme left and the extreme left are found in liberal spaces like universities and the media. I didn't even get into it, but the nationalism and the extreme right, which, which is also rising, as telling uh, Rami, my parents spent six months in Florida from Montreal, they go to the warm Florida for the winter, to go to a synagogue, to a temple in Florida, the congregation passed a resolution that there will be four men. You need ten people to pray in Judaism, four have to be armed. You have security guards outside, and the, and the people are praying for arms. That's from the right wing, fascist extremism, which is, and populism, which is also beginning to emerge in Europe and North America. The, this, maybe our silence, the refugee crisis, our silence, the political Islam, and now the migration crisis, and all sorts of things are threatening our sensibilities of populism and right wing extremism, and political Islam, not Islam, political Islam. They're all attacking the Jew and Israel, but I, should, I would argue that history shows that this is an early warning system. Something is not right in our society. Something is not right in our neoliberal, globalizing world. And these, these issues should be taken seriously, not just by Jews and Israelis or scholars, 
but these are something I think that really uh, is pertinent and urgent for young scholars to begin to engage and debate and argue with each other. You don't have to have the same views that I have or anybody else has, but read and learn and discuss because these are very important issues for the security of our countries and our democratic future. Thank you for listening. Charles, uh, I suppose there can be time for questions and answers, so I open this time now. Anybody has questions? Yes? Sorry, two already. I, I didn't see who was first, but anyway. Do you, do you see relationship between the anti semitism and the Zambian process in the Middle East? The anti semitism and what? It's a very important question, good question. So I think there's a, there's a strong connection. One of my colleagues always say that there's a strong connection, but I won't tell you who it is. Um, um, so yes, I think if my argument and the arguments of many scholars is that the demonization of Jewish peoplehood is anti-Semitism, is contemporary anti-Semitism. The, the, the amount of propaganda that came out of the Middle East through this reactionary social movement, using anti-Semitism as a core to support domestically and even internationally, this, these reactionary movements has caused such devastation to the region. And the inability for these societies, these Middle Eastern societies, to accept the only other, Israel is the only other non-Muslim country, or non-dominant Muslim country in the region. And I actually think that if Israel is accepted in the region, it would mark the beginning of a tremendous change um, for the area. So I think ending anti-Semitism ultimately ultimately accepting the Jewish notion of people in the region and accepting it and working with it, with it would lead to huge advances at so many levels. Um, and this anti-Semitism has, has hindered the entire region. I, I, thanks to one of my colleagues, um, I spoke at the Muslim World League, and uh, I was the first Israeli to speak to the Muslim World League. And I told them, I spoke like I spoke to you, basically, not very diplomatic, like more, maybe more diplomatically, more formal, kind of type. But um, I was sitting with the leaders of the Islamic world, the Secretary General of the, um, of the Arab League, of the, the Grand Mufti of Egypt was there, the leader of the Dr. Alisa of the Muslim World League, uh, Sheikh bin Riyadh, I was sitting next to him. I won't tell you my reaction to that, I was sitting next to him. And um, I told them that the demonization of Jewish people, of Israel and the Jews, is anti-Semitism. And the Jews are protected. We fled. The Jews, you know, does anybody know how many Jews, you know, left the Middle East to go to Israel? And the Jewish people lived in the region for, for, for thousands of years. And only a tiny amount are left in the Arab countries that were removed. Many went to Israel and to other countries. 
And I said to them that ultimately we, we can protect ourselves. Israel is a strong country with a strong army. The Jewish community has resources, it's educated, it has some wealth, and hopefully they'll be okay in many, in many other parts of the world. So, but the greatest victim of anti-Semitism as a form of hatred are Muslims. Think about it. Think about the genocide happening in Syria. The people perpetrating the genocide, they talk about the Jews and the Zionists as they kill their brothers and sisters. It's, it's insanity. So I think people are waking up to the fact that anti-Semitism is destroying the parts of the world that uh, this, this disease has been allowed to fester and was celebrated and supported. So I believe that there's some people, some leaders, who are really genuinely committed to ending this form of hatred and beginning to make a rapprochement to the Jewish people and to even to Israel quietly. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't want this to happen, but I, I believe there's people of goodwill who are trying to make it happen. And by accepting the Jew, I think an ending anti-Semitism or, or, or taking a strong position against it at least will help everybody in the region. And uh, I hope. So there's hope. And maybe it's a based question, but I wonder what you think then. How are we going to suppress banal uh, nationalism and the pathologic nationalism? Because, you know, there is no clear-cut distinction between, you know, the banal one, the pathologic one, and the worst of the other one. And then how we can, how we can categorize them distinctly. To categorize nationalism distinctly? Yeah, banal one versus pathologic one, banal nationalism, okay. or are they the same thing? It's a good question. So, um, it's interesting. So, in terms of anti-Semitism and Zionism, which is the, the nationalist movement to, to emancipate Jews from the Jewish perspective, um, you, it's a nationalist movement. So it's interesting. I didn't touch on it in my remarks, but as Europe moved from uh, modernism to nationalism, I know. so World War II and the Holocaust, Europe, European intellectuals and Europe realized that you know, this is a catastrophe. We have to move away from rigid national identities, and I think that the the political environment was such that postmodernity was able to emerge. So we didn't talk about fixed identities. You're not. French and German were hybrids, were a man, were a woman, were heterosexual, homosexual, or you know, half Bosnian, half this. This is the world we live in, and fixed identities become problematic. So it's interesting. So before the Holocaust, the Jews were the ultimate cosmopolitan. They spoke, you know, different forms of bastardized, that's a bad word in English, uh, forms of language. Yiddish wasn't German, it wasn't Polish. This. They, they lived here, they lived there, they traded amongst themselves. They were the ultimate cosmopolitans in these rigid nationalist, racist constructions. And they were, uh, they paid a price for being the, you know, the cosmopolitan Jew, infiltrating the society. But now in the aftermath with postmodernity, the Jew emerges with a strong identity and they're Zionists. And they're saying, you know, we have a, a right to our nation. And we are fixed in our identity at some level. Even though, you know, if you go to Israel, if you haven't, I recommend that you go and visit. It's one of the most uh, 
multicultural, intercultural places in the world. There's people from all over, and there's music, and you know, food, and cuisine. It's, a, it's an amazing mixture of people, and yet the Jew and the Israelis have strong identities which sort of are contradictory to the sort of postmodern anti-nationalist intellectual moment. So it's, so it's interesting how the Jews, are, the timing is, of the Jewish people is not good. So, um, so, that, so Zionism, based on your question, in a sense is sort of is problematic in this intellectual and political moment. Although it's changing, the Brexit and the European Union, maybe things like nationalism re-emerging, uh, all sorts of strange geostrategic things happening in Europe with Israel, but that's another uh, lecture. So, look, I think that there's different forms of nationalism that I think could work. Um, I lived in the United States, from, I'm born in Canada, I lived in the United States for many years, about 14 years, and now I'm starting to spend more time in, in, in mostly in Toronto. And I'm amazed at Toronto. I, it's, I'm amazed at Israel. I think Israel in some ways is really, it's nationalist, but it's also intercultural. It's a, it's a contradictory identities. And Canada too, with its multicultural policies, it's, it's amazing. Coming from the United States, which is a very polarized society, I think it's more segregated by race and by class. Politically, it's, there's a huge, you know, between the Democrats and the Republicans, it's a very, subjugated society, very intense and politically fraught. And Canada, with its multiculturalism, is a, it's a breath of fresh air. So Canadians are not nationalists as such, but they're very proud of their country. And they promote different cultures. So each community has a strong identity, which could be segregationist. You have to be careful not to be segregationist in multiculturalism. But I find it amazing how Canadians really in their, their, as they're educated, they're, they're educated citizens. And there is at least, and there is still racism and sexism and problem and anti-Semitism too in Canada. But I think on a political level and on a societal level, people really integrate this notion of multiculturalism. They have a really, there's a, the, the national ethos, there's a very strong working day-to-day -day respect for the other. And I, as a you know, Canadian that left a long time ago and I'm coming to spend time there, I'm really impressed with that model. So it's a form of nationalism, but I think it's a, it's a benign form, it's a good form. And uh, so I think it's possible. You know, but if you ask an indigenous person about Canadian multiculturalism, they will have a different view than I just said. So it's, there's contradictions. But I, I think there's models that can work. But we always have to be searching to expand our democratic principles and strengthening citizenship. And it's a delicate balance. It's not, it's not an easy balance. Charles Taylor, who was my professor at McGill, I think writes amazing on this. He's worth reading. He's different issues. Public space and private space and democracy and culture. And I like the work of, Ch Ch of Taylor. But Taylor, interestingly, uses von Herder. Von Herder was a German philosopher who was one of the first philosophers to create this notion of the inherent, intrinsic notions of race. So Taylor from Moria. So we all contradict. Interesting. Thanks.
um, you quote before Levinas, no? And the face of the other, I studied very much and I, I like it. The question is uh, if there is a relationship here in Europe between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, criticizing the, the uh, view of um, Israel, criticizing the Israel during Israel uh, politics is anti is an action anti Semitist for you. Other questions? Good question. So you have to need a lecture. We are obligated every time I repeat. You need another lecture to us. I'll try to answer and be brief at the same time. Okay. So your first the first question on anti-Semitism and the international court and Trump moving the the embassy. The, um, the embassy. So, so I, I think ultimately it's nice that a country recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I think it's a good thing. But it kind of connects to other questions too. I think when, you are, when you're capable of uh, defining yourself, that means you have power. And if you look at the history of Israel, of the Jewish people, and what Jerusalem represents to Judaism and to Jews, it, uh, it's our capital. This is, a, you know, this is what Jewish people believe. Now, do we share it? Do we divide it? Do we, do we let other cultures participate in it? Do we make a geostrategic political arrangement? That's a good question. It's an important issue. But Israel is the capital of of uh, Israel. Jews pray to Israel three times a day. Yes. Does anybody know the four holy sites, the whole, sorry, the four holy cities in Judaism? So, is, is Judaism part of your education? Do you learn about Judaism? Okay. So, so, so the other. Right? We have to recognize our face in the face of the other. So what do Jewish people think about their land? And there's many opinions, and there's, there's political opinions, but there's also a body of wisdom, a body of culture that goes back thousands of years. And you know, I study, I study Torah and Talmud and the, the commentaries. And um, you know, it's it's, for me it's amazing. I can take with my study partner and my rabbi, my different rabbis, one in particular, we can take a line in the Torah, the Old Testament, and we can spend literally months discussing it, going deeper and deeper and deeper, using commentary by this rabbi, this scholar, for thousands of years of wisdom. So when I went to Oxford, I studied with some of the leading uh, social and cultural theorists, Terry Eagleton and David Harvey, these guys are geniuses. But, you know, there's a depth to their, to their genius and their scholarship. And this is a culture and a wisdom that existed for thousands of years. It comes from this part of the world. Um, and it's uh, profound. And I think that... And I feel like I'm music Israel, it's 
so I think that there has to be, it's time, that European intellectuals and students, when it's coming to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, when it comes to questions of Judaism and Jewish contribution to Western civilization, to philosophy, to thought, to politics, to the current contemporary realities, there has to be a little bit, just a little bit of education of what it is to be Jewish and what it means. This is very important. So there's four holy cities in Jewish thought. Jerusalem, Tiberias, Tzfat, and Hebron. Tzfat is the wind. This is where the Kabbalah came from. Tiberias is the water. And Jerusalem is the earth. And Hebron is the fire. Now, so this is deep. We, I, if this was Jewish studies, we were in the religion department. This could be a semester. I could teach about this for a semester. And there has to be some understanding. So, that, so when President Trump recognizes Jerusalem as the capital, it's good. Given the dynamics of politics today between the left and the right, it puts Israel and Jerusalem into a, a certain type of debate, which I think is problematic. You know? But okay. So, so I think there has to be an awareness of what it means to. to Jewish people. So yes, I think Israel, I think Jerusalem is the capital. It's nice that people recognize it. But we know who we are. We know where we're from. You know, as the Bob Marley song says. Okay, we're leaving Babylon, but that's another story. And also, you know, it's the four exiles. Speaking of Babylon, you know about the four exiles. Jewish history. You know, you know, you know about the four exiles. There's four exiles. So there's Egypt, slavery, Babylon, annihilation, the Greeks. The Greeks said to the Jews, you can stay in Israel, but you have to pray to our God, not your God. It's assimilation. And the Romans came, and in our belief, it represents the largest exile. That in the exiles of Edom, of Rome, we will have slavery, assimilation, and annihilation, and it will last in the deep, deeper than, the, it will go longer than the depths of the greatest seas. This is our exile today. I'm honored to be speaking in Rome and to be standing here. But, so, this, so from a Jewish perspective, these things are, you know, the world, our worldviews are similar, and there's distinctions that we should learn to, to learn from each other and to communicate with each other. Um, your question about the definition of anti-Semitism, the IO definition. So it's very important, I think, to have definitions of anti-Semitism. Uh, we were involved in uh, helping to create the Iron definition of anti-Semitism based on re research to, ask, to answer your question. Is there a connection between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism? So of course you can criti I criticize Israel. There's economic disparity. It, you know, there's a lot of things. It's a dynamic society of contradictions and problems. But to question the existence of Israel. So the Iron definition puts if you blame individual Jewish people for the policies of Israel, it's anti-Semitic. If you compare Israel to a Nazi fascist state, it's a form of anti-Semitism, according to this definition. So we did a study, I did a study with Ed Kaplan at Yale University, and we interviewed 10,000 Europeans in 10 countries, and we asked them a series of questions of classical forms of anti-Semitism, that Jews cheat in business, the old anti-Semitic stereotypes, and what we call Israel bashing. Questions like, you think that, do you think Israel's an apartheid state? Does the Israeli army intentionally shoot Palestinian children? We asked a bunch of questions, and based on our criteria, 
which was a good criteria, but no criteria, no methodology is perfect, but it was good. Um, we came up with, uh, we measured the amount of classical antisemites, the one we called Israel bashers. And what we found was those who were Israel bashers in our classification were 13 times more likely to be anti-Semitic in the classical sense. So there's a strong correlation between people who criticize excessively Israel and anti-Semitism. And so the correlation is strong. But of course, if you criticize Israeli policies of Israeli, you're not, it doesn't mean you're anti-Semitic. But I think if you go over a certain line, you are. And I think the IRA definition incorporates that perspective. So I'll tell you a funny story. I was, did this when I was, uh, I did this with a report. We published it. It was uh, covered in the New York Times and Le Monde. And I went home to Montreal to my parents and they have Shabbat dinner, they Friday night dinner. And um, my parents had big dinners. 25, 30 people would have Friday night supper at my parents' house. So I came from Yale. And my mother is a very smart woman, but she had me when I was, when she was 17, she got married at 17, she was young, different uh, generation, different times, so she didn't have a formal education, but she's smart. Um, so she read the, uh, the article, which is very scientific and mathematical. So at the end of dinner, she told everybody to be quiet. And she said, Charles, we're very proud of you. You, know, you wrote an article, it was published in a good journal, and the New York Times wrote about you, we're very proud. I read the paper, I don't understand the thing, could you explain it to me? So I explained it to the table what I just explained to you, there's a correlation. So my mother turns to me, she said, how long did you work on the project for? So I said, it was almost two years. And she said, what was the budget? So I told her how much money we spent to do all the surveys and the research. So she turned to her friends and our family, and she said, my son, the professor, it took him two years and all this money to prove what we already know. <laughs> <laughs> So she keeps me in line. But, uh, so, the, so the correlation, I think, is deeply understood in the Jewish community. That the demonization of Israel and, and, and Jewish peoplehood is definitely interconnected to anti-Semitism. But that does not mean people should uh, necessarily not feel hindered to criticize aspects of Israeli society. Okay. Uh, Connection between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Who wants to do that? You ask me. So, so Islamophobia, I think, is a problematic notion. It, from uh, scholars that I respect and know, this gentleman, uh, you know, Professor Kunzel in Germany, and other scholars show that the notion of Islamophobia has come out. It started with the Iranian Revolutionary Regime under Ahmadinejad, and was used by the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamists to to, um, to silence free speech, to silence criticism of political Islam. This is sort of the instrumental tool of the notion of Islamophobia. And in Europe, there's this wonderful, I don't know why, this sort of need to compare Islamophobia to anti-Semitism. Why do we have to compare it? Even if, even if Islamophobia is a valid concept, why is there always this rush it's interesting. So, having, I, so I don't like the concept, but having said that, we live in a time when um, the migration crisis and rising nationalism 
Muslims and the place of Muslims in European societies and other societies is being questioned in unfair ways, and I think it's a form of discrimination. It's an excess of nationalism, um, and it should be taken very seriously by scholars. I don't. I, I would like to look at issues of um, anti-Semitism, at uh, discrimination against Muslims, prejudice against Muslims. I don't like the term Islamophobia. This, uh, I'm dissecting this as a scholar, but there is an issue that needs to be taken very seriously. Any form of discrimination is horrible. And I would argue that anti-Semitism, so that's my view of discrimination against Muslims, I don't like the, the, this rush to compare. I find that's uh, problematic. And I think the, the, the legacy and the, the centrality of anti-Semitism in Western civilization, and as Wistrup and other scholars of anti-Semitism argue, that anti-Semitism is inherently genocidal, which is different than other forms of hatred, as horrific as other forms of hatred are, and, has, and how damaging other forms of hatred are, that there's something unique about anti-Semitism that should be taken seriously, particularly in European thought and religion and civilization. Um, the idea of Zionism in Israel, your question, uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, so I think the, the idea of Israel in, uh, in Judaism and in Jewish heritage and thought and wisdom is very strong. We know, we still know who we are uh, in general. Uh, actually, I think there's more Jews in Israel now than the United States, but it's just by a little bit. There's a big Jewish community in the United States. Most of them fled this part of the world to go there. Um, so, so I think the, the, the ability to define ourselves is very important. So we know who we are, we know where we're from. There are some uh, Jewish people who are not Zionists, who are Bundists, who believe in a sort of a more universal notion of identities. That experiment, historically, was a catastrophe. The Bundists uh, of Europe in the, in the interwar period, the Holocaust, were, were destroyed, the model. I think did not test, stand the test of time. Maybe Zionism and Israel won't either, but the Bundes uh, didn't do too well. And if people have an anti, if Jews have an anti-Zionist uh, view of Israel, okay, there are there are secular anti-Zionist Jews and there are religious anti-Zionist Jews. Okay, it's uh, you know, there's 13 to 15 million Jews and there's probably 18 million opinions within the Jewish community, but it's okay. Um, and interesting about Arab Israelis, you know that the largest amount of uh, the largest sector of the Jewish Israelis are Arabs. They come from Arab origin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so that's another, it's another interesting issue about Arab identity. It's interesting. And yeah, but if you're talking about minority rights in, the, in Israel, it's a very important issue. And. Um, there's problems, there's contradictions, it's a difficult, it's difficult to be a minority in Israel given the Jewish politics of the region. Um, there's discrimination, there's issues, there's inequalities. Um, but uh, given the circumstances, it's, things are pretty good from my perspective. Um, it's interesting, I think, in the wake of what's happening in Syria and Iraq, what's happening in the Palestinian society, 
Uh, and what's happening in Israel, the integration of, uh, of Palestinian Israelis and Muslims and Christians into Israeli society is fascinating. Um, it's the fastest growing group of people going to universities in Israel. Um, so it's, it's, it's this generation in the last uh, 15 or 20 years has big changes happening in Israel. It's quite remarkable. So, and actually, Muslim Israelis and Palestinian Israelis and everyone home are now in, in high tech and startups to the most successful group in the last few years. Young people entering the. Are six. What? Six o'clock. Six o'clock. Okay, so just to finish. No, no, it's for you. Okay. So now we're on Swiss time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So any, uh, anything else? I would like to thank uh, Charles so much. So it's an honor for you to be here. Okay. Well, that's another question.